So what I want to speak about tonight is about ethics, compassion and wisdom. And uh, because, I mean, somebody in an interview asked me about compassion in Zen, how technically would you cultivate compassion in the Zen tradition? And also somebody asked a question about that subject. And actually what is, in the Zen tradition, especially in the Korean Zen tradition, you don't have like a practice per se about cultivating compassion as you sit in meditation. It's not like in the Theravada tradition, you have a loving kindness meditation, or in the Tibetan tradition, you have various practices you can do, like Tonglen, etc., etc. In, in Korean Zen Buddhism, you don't have that technically as such. You just have the what is it? Very simple. <laughs> but the what is it? is actually contained within the very conscious, conscious compassionate attitude. This is very much the ground, the base. Like when we are uh, in Korea, the first thing that you do in any ceremony that you would have would be again and again to make the vow. To make the vow that although sentient beings are numberless, you vow to save them. This again and again, you will recite that vow. So in a way, your whole practice is grounded on that vow, the first vow of a Zen practitioner. And then within that vow, there is very much this idea, this concept of bodhisattva. That actually in the Zen tradition in Korea, when we take, uh, when we walk on the path, there is very much that idea of being a bodhisattva, of being a being who aspires to awakening for the sake of all. This is again very much what is, I mean, this is the ground, you kind of, this is a basic thing that is in the environment. Because in a way there is this uh, faith that we all have the Buddha nature, we all can awaken, and at that level we can try to help ourselves and others to awaken, to discover, to uncover, to be with that Buddha nature. So in a way, let it manifest. So in Korea, what you find is ethics as compassion. That's what is very interesting, because you have this text, which I am working on at the moment. And a book is going to come out about what I'm working on. And it's called The Bodhisattva Precept. And so in it you have 58 precepts, so I won't go over all of them tonight, it's too many. But what is interesting with these 58 precepts is that actually it's not something you take once, and this is it. You, as a monk, as a nun, you take it for the first time when you become a 10 precepts monk or nun. At that time you take the bodhisattva precepts. Then after that, every two weeks, you will be reciting them again again and again and again. And then the people too take the precepts. And in Korea, once a year you have this large ceremony and everybody will take the bodhisattva <coughs> precepts again. And so in a way there is very much this idea that these are the precepts, but they are not precepts as rules. They are precepts as inspiration. They are precepts as guidelines, as inspiration, aspiration, so that there is this knowledge, this kind of understanding, that we will all fail in trying to cultivate them. 
And for this reason, we need to take them again and again and again. So, in a way, I would say this is very much the environment of compassion in uh, Korean Zen Buddhism. And why I became interested in this precept, apart from the fact that I kept hearing them, and over time I started to understand them, because at the beginning my Korean was too poor. I took them, but I didn't know what I was taking. <laughs> but over time, I could understand them better as they were recited, and then I could notice that everything my teacher did in everyday life was based upon this precept. And one of the kind of cute things he used to do was that whenever we went to the field, if he encountered a cow, he would pat the cow and he would say something. I was very curious. What does he say? What does he do to this cow? And actually, he did in the precept. What he, what he did was that actually he whisked, as he patted the cow, he whisked for the cow to raise the mind of awakening. So that's what he did. So because of that, I became very interested in this precept. And because to me, the, most of these precepts are about compassion, but it's not an abstract compassion. That's what I like about these precepts, is that they are actually very practical. So that's why I would put together myself as, as a practitioner, as a kind of on the meditative path, ethics, compassion and wisdom, and to see that they're very much linked. Because I think if you just have ethics, then you might become quite rigid. If you have just compassion, you can become quite mushy. And then if you just have wisdom, it can become very dry. And so in a way, you need the three of them together. We need to cultivate them. They're very much part of our meditative practice. Because when we look at ethics, you could see it in different ways. People use ethics in different ways. Some people use it as a way to regulate a society. Some people use it as a way to induce fear in people. You know, if you don't do this, you're going to go in hell, so... Or you can use ethics, the foundation, and guilt, again. Personally, I don't think these three are very good ideas. I mean, they might work, but I don't think they're very kind of meditatively creative, let's say. But I think very much compassion is at the root of ethics. I think, in a way, if you do meditation, it seems to me you cannot burn become compassionate, and through that they cannot but become ethical. I think to me it's the same thing. Being ethical, being compassionate is part of the same thing. And my first realization of that was when I was in Korea. And I mean, uh, for my early in my childhood, I wanted to save the world, and I was very politically active, and I was an anarchist, da 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 da, things like that. And I had this quite striking moment for me as an anarchist. You know, going to a bank in Korea, changing money, and the person, the teller, giving me too much money. And my first reaction is, what again, the capitalist system, I am taking this money with me. And I just did a few, I walked up very little within the bank, and then I stopped myself and I said, I can't do this, I can't take this money. I can't take this money because the guy is going to get into trouble. So then I went back and gave the money that he gave me to Matt. And I realized that it was out of compassion. I could not do this that before I would have done so easily and so gleefully. <laughs> but then I could not. Nothing would stop me. Compassion, thinking of somebody else, 
stop me from doing that. So what I like to do now is in a way use the text, the Brahmajala Sutra and the Bodhisattva Precept, which was, what is interesting about this text is that it was kind of created in 5th century China. So it is quite long ago for us, 1500 years, I have gone back. But this text was created actually to respond to the need of the Chinese people. And then the question could be, I mean, how can that be relevant to us today? And actually, it is really quite relevant. It's so fascinating to see that what people did in 5th century China is very similar to what we do in the uh, 21st century in modern time. It's very fascinating. The human mind, the looking to have changed very much, the human activity. So what I like to do is look at the title, then look at the explanation that is given, and then kind of because what is interesting in this text is that you have titles, like, you know, this is the title of the precept. And then there is explanation about why you should do this, why you should not do this, and what it really entails not to do this. So they kind of sometimes go in great depth about, you know, look at all the different points. And to me that's what is interesting. So, here we go. So the first one is, refrain from facing life. We all used to this precept. But what they say is very interesting, that we should try not to perform the act, we should not try to have somebody else do it, we should not try to do it in a roundabout way, we should not try to create the causes and conditions to do it, and we should not develop a means to do it. That, I think, is very interesting. Because, of course, we don't, I'm sure, generally, you don't go around killing people. But what we could look at it in terms of, for ourselves, about causing harm. Basically, it is saying, refrain from causing harm to others, to life. And then we can reflect, how do I cause harm to myself and to others? How do I kind of cause someone else to do harm on my behalf, in a way? How do I cause harm in a roundabout way? How do I create the, con the causes and conditions for harm to happen? And do I develop the means to cause harm? And I think then, all of us in our lives, we can reflect, I think, all these different little points, which I think can be quite interesting. And then it says, why? Why should we refrain from killing, from causing harm? It's because it is a duty of a bodhisattva. It is a duty of a, a person who aspires to awakening, to be compassionate towards others and lead them to liberation. So if you kill them before you get them to liberation, this is, this is the purpose. It is often, you know, they become very logical, very practical. You know, don't do something that this is the purpose of compassion. This is often what he's trying to point out. The next one is, again, you're familiar with it, refrain from taking what is not given. And again, you have the whole thing. You know, the perform, the call someone else, roundabout, create cause and commit, every time. This again makes you look at all the different ways we might be, in a way, taking something that is not given. And for myself, I think it was, it's also in terms of wisdom, it's in terms of compassion, of course, but it's in terms of wisdom too. Because when I was young, when I was 18, 17, 18, 
I used to have a, a bad habit, you could say now, but I thought it was a good habit then, of liberating books. <laughs> Otherwise known as stealing books from bookshops. And I was so curious, but I thought myself it was liberating them, of course. And I stopped doing it. And I think this is in a way what is interesting, what comes further in the explanation, because suddenly one day, I did it for a year or two, and then one day, I thought, this is not a good idea to do this. Nobody told me. And then my solution not to do it was wisdom, was not to go to bookshops, and the second one was not to desire books. And I think in a way this was my first movement onto the meditative path, was this suddenly these two realizations, not to go to the play and not to desire the object itself. And what is interesting in this precept, they say, why to not to take what is not given? Because it is the duty of a bodhisattva to make others joyful and happy. And that's even more interesting, and it is also our duty to be in harmony with the Buddha nature. So in a way I think what happened in that bookshop is that more and more I felt there was this dislocation between myself aspiring to wisdom and compassion and doing something that was truly not wise and compassionate. So in a way that was not in harmony with the Buddha nature. So I think sometimes it's interesting when we do things, we could ask ourselves, would the Buddha do this? <laughs> and that might be a little way to kind of ask some idea about it. Then the next one is, refrain from improper sexual behavior. So again, we are familiar with that. But again, basically what they mean is that do not engage. They're not saying do not have sex or love somebody. They say do not engage in perverted, hurtful, indecent, with the family, etc., etc. So again, they give you all kind of, you know, don't do it with ghosts of a certain nature. I mean, they're very kind of precise, but I thought you might not be so interested in that. All the people you should not do it with. <laughs> and, uh, and what is interesting is they say, why? Why, why should not you engage in improper sexual behavior? He says, because it is not in harmony with the Buddha nature. And because you aspire to lead other to liberation by teaching the, the pure Dharma. So again, it's not because you know, people look down upon you or because this or that, but because it is not in harmony with the Buddha nature. It is not in accordance with the pure Dharma. And also what they point out is that then compassion will disappear. If you do that, compassion will disappear. And I think it is true, generally, if we engage in improper sexual action, then compassion disappears within ourselves. But compassion disappears for the other person because very often somebody else gets hurt, ourselves, someone else, someone, someone else. So in a way to kind of look at that, but this is also about compassion, because sometimes the impulse is so strong that I think very quickly compassion disappears in that respect. Then the next one is refrain from telling lies. And this, I mean, you all have heard that one again, but what they say is very interesting. Do not convey the impression 
that you saw something that you did not see, or that you did not see something that you saw. So it's very subtle actually, it's not just about telling downright lies, it's about covering impression. And then they even go as far as covering impression through physical gesture and mental intention. This is interesting. I mean, this century China, we do the same. You know, how do you cover it? How, you know, you don't say totally the truth, but actually you don't say anything because, you know, you cannot say a lie, you're a good Buddhist. But actually through the body, you say it. And sometimes we do that. Or even through our mental intention. And that's what is interesting about these precepts, is that again and again they will say, with, uh, they will start with, with an evil intent, for the sake of gain, intentionally, de- deliberately. So this is very much also about motivation, not, also, not only about action, about result, but also about intention. What is our intention? So if you want to take something accidentally, then that's okay, because it is accidental, it's not deliberate, it's not intentional. But if the accident repeats itself quite a lot over time, then that one could kind of start to look at it. Because unconscious, unconsciously intentional. And why it should not be, what is the duty of the Bodhisattva in that respect of uh, telling lies is to cultivate right view and to speak truthfully and to engage, encourage others to do likewise. And I don't think they need to kind of go to others and say, don't tell lies. But I think more that we, by not telling lies, that actually will help others to, to be more truthful. And I remember once when I was in Korea, this uh, young man came. And for two days I had to take care of him and translate and things like that. That was my job as a foreign guest master, mistress. And, uh, so he was telling me, oh, he was very mobile and talked a lot and was telling all kinds of things and I just took them at face value. I mean, I don't lie and I generally don't expect others to lie. And by the end of it, I realized that everything he told me was total lie, horrific. And he was strange because I could not grasp it. I could not grasp why does he need to do this? I mean, what? I, I could not grasp it. It was kind of like ungraspable, that fact, that everything he said was untrue. It was very strange to encounter something like this, which I couldn't do myself. And I was very strange. It was like I had been in a theater. Like I had been kind of, you know, a different theater play that I had not expected. It was a very strange feeling of kind of, like, kind of reality, kind of fluctuating. It was very strange. Then the next one is very interesting, because Generally, the fifth precept that we generally all know is refrain from taking intoxicant and alcohol. And here it is very different. Here it's refrain from selling alcohol. And the taking comes later in the secondary minor precept, which is a great precept. And this is interesting. So it's not so, I mean, it's not a good idea to drink in, in alcohol, but it's much worse to sell it. <laughs> and why that? So I hope we have no pub owner here. And why that? It's because it's a conditional factor in committing negative acts, acts which are hurtful to yourself, hurtful to others. And then 
why the Bodhisattva should do this? What is the duty to the Bodhisattva in that respect? That's very interesting. The duty of the Bodhisattva is to cultivate brilliant wisdom in the mind of living beings and not leave them into confusion. Interesting that idea that this is our job, you know, to cultivate brilliant wisdom in the mind of living beings. How can we do that? You know, the pathfinding is beautiful. So how can I do that? How can I help others to cultivate brilliant wisdom and not leave them into confusion? Then it's not to be a little different from, from what you know. Then there is refrain from praising yourself and slandering others. So what he goes on to explain, and this is where in this precept you really see actually the same extent for others, Tonglen, in uh, Tibetan Buddhism. Because that's what he says. Because the duty of the Bodhisattva is to take upon oneself the slander directed at others. What he is saying is that if there is slander to somebody else, we take it upon ourselves. We want to do that. Then the next thing we want to do is to transfer whatever is unpleasant to ourselves and give whatever is good to others. I mean, this is totally typical tongue and exchange for self and others you find in Shantideva. And of course, this is very idealistic. I mean, who wants to take the slander of others? Who wants to take the unpleasantness of others? Who wants to give our good stuff to others? I mean, we're a little kind of, well, maybe at Christmas, but, you know. <laughs> <laughs> but this is, you know, I think these precepts are, of course, a little idealistic, but I think in a way they're trying to make us go a little beyond our self-centeredness. Because it's so self-centered. And I think, in a way, the accent of this precepts is kind of, well, could I possibly one day, you know, for a minute, you know, kind of take the unpleasantness of somebody else, or the splendor of somebody else. So it's kind of, you know, we're questioning, kind of us continuing to be comfortable to when we think of ourselves. And so in that way, they say, you know, we should not display our own virtue and conceal the virtue of others so that they get into trouble. And this is, I think, it's very, you might think, well, this is just also really referred to me. But when you got it, what do you do? Generally, you present yourself as, look at me, I am nice sometimes. And then, who's that? <laughs> and you will do it, but praising yourself, reviling others. And I think it's interesting, you know, gossiping. Yeah, I mean, of course, we need a little social lubricant. Well, chit-chat, I think, is useful. But I think it's interesting, the movement from chit-chatting to starting to gossip. When Buddhists love to gossip about all the Buddhists. Mm-hmm. It's one of their favorite activities. <laughs> then the next one, that one is interesting. We continue with the reviling. Refrain from reviling others in order to spare yourself. <coughs> it's interesting. And actually, the explanation of it is that it's about miserliness, about being miserly, about kind of, you know, keeping, not kind of extending ourselves. So they say, when somebody comes to you and they are a poor person, for example, give whatever is requested. If somebody comes in search of the Dharma, please at least give a few words of advice. 
But don't revive them with art and edit world. Again, you might think this has not much to do with me. I don't, you know, revive people with art and evil world. I can't be kind and sympathetic. But if you see a beggar on the street, if you see three beggars on the street in London, especially, what do you do? You think, ah, a sentient being is requesting something, I'll do whatever is requested, as the priest had said, or do you say, well, no, no, if I give him something, you know, he's going to drink alcohol, he's going to kind of shoot himself with heroin, and anyway, I'm sure he could get social security, or whatever. And actually, doing that is what they're talking about. Actually, kind of reviving somebody else, so that we don't have to give something, so that we kind of, you know, protect ourselves. In the same way that you might have friends who ask for your advice, so you give it one, second time, three times, and they never take it, you know? And so, the, I mean, the, the tenth time you think, why, why should I bother with them anyway, you know, these guys? So this is that, you know, you put the person down, so then you don't have to exert yourself, to extend yourself, so in a way, you are miserly. I think this is an interesting thing to look at. Why are we miserly in that way, you know, not wanting to really kind of give a little more? Then there is refrain from being angry and treat well someone who asks for forgiveness. And what is interesting there is that they say the duty of the Bodhisattva is to be kind and not quarrelsome with others and to be compassionate. In a way, in this idea of compassion, there is this idea that we're kind also that we're not quarrelsome. And I think again, I think, you know, now we've kind of moved on from 5th century China and there is basically many ideas about anger. But I think what they're talking about here is being quarrelsome. It's kind of, you know, wanting to pick an argument, kind of wanting to kind of, you know, kind of, you know, being prickly or being kind of, I think we all know what it means. We're kind of easily irritated and, you know, we kind of pick on whatever the person will say and nothing is right. And, so it's kind of talking about that, because in a way this is the opposite of compassion or kindness, because we're very much tightened when we do that. And so, but what is interesting in the, in the pretext, in the explanation, is that it says, you should not abuse living creatures, and you should not vent your anger on inanimate objects. <laughs> so, even in 5th century China, you know, they did not kind of, uh, kind of, uh, Kick the car, but you know, they might have kicked the horse or kind of a chair or whatever when they were angry. I mean, it's interesting. I mean, it's so different, you know? So that was kind of fun. And so they said, you know, the point of it is that if somebody begs forgiveness, you must, you must not kind of revile them. You must kind of be ready to accept, to, to forgive them. If somebody makes a mistake, they beg for your forgiveness. Do not be resentful. But I think often what happens, we might be slightly forgiven, forgiving, but then we still be resentful. And I think this is in a way the problem, I think, in the West with forgiveness, that we forgive but we still very resentful. The <coughs> anger in that way is not appeased. So we still kind of feeling underneath. And then we kind of, you know, you send little kind of nasty little point. It's interesting. You know, if I'm Buddhist, I have you know, they ask for forgiveness, of course, yes, yes, I understand, da, da, da. But then later on, how do you kind of, you know, say little things? They're not very kind. It's very interesting how we work that. And what was 
very challenging for me to sing Korea. And I think it follows from that pressure. In the monastery, would see how they resolve differences, and when somebody makes mistakes, I was weird. I, I, I saw it again and again. And for a Westerner, it was very crazy. So very beautiful. What they would do is that if you made a mistake, the only thing you had to do, whatever type of mistake, you would have to go to the master or go to the person who know about it, and you just have to bow three times and say, "I made a mistake." And they would say, fine, don't do it again. And that was that, never to be talked ever again. And there was no resentment. To me that was, you know, and what was interesting is that when a, a Westerner, kind of somebody told them, you know, you made a mistake, then they would go into this very convoluted explanation about why they were doomed to make that mistake and da 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 and it was very complicated and I would see the master sitting there thinking, can he not just bow and accept <laughs> And I had this happen with my teacher, Master Cousin. Generally, I was very kind of devoted and humble disciple, but sometimes uh, I was kind of not agreeing with him. So one day, we had a little kind of exchange, because I about somebody else who said something, and then Master Kuzan was very dogmatic, oh, I thought so. And I said, you know, this is very dogmatic, and that's what we do. And then we left it at that. And then I thought, oh, I made a mistake. I should have spoken like that. <laughs> it is not a bad, a good idea. So I went to Master Cousin and said, oh, I'm so sorry, and I bowed this time I made a mistake. And it was very moving for me because he said, I made a mistake too. And he just bowed to each other. And that was that. We never talked about it again, never, nothing, nothing. We still gone. That was always very interesting to see in the Korean monastery. Then the next one is refrain from eating meat. And so you might, and in Korea, in China, all the monasteries are vegetarian. I mean, you don't even have eggs. And in my day, there was very, I mean, by the end of it, you would get powdered milk. But generally, they would not use milk or eggs in the cooking. And it was truly, truly vegetarian. And why are they vegetarian? Because they said it destroyed great compassion and great kindness and the seed of the Buddha nature. But of course, over time, this was very difficult for the lay people to follow that precept. So what happened is that in the monastery, it would be vegetarian. But the lay people would have special days, what they call special vegetarian days. So about three times a month, they would just for a day be vegetarian. And then the rest of the time, they would eat meat because they felt they needed it or whatever. Then you have the next one is care well for those who are sick. And what is beautiful is they say you must care and provide for the sick as if it were as if they were the Buddha himself. In a way when you see a sick person, well, you must see that person as the Buddha himself. And that you will take care of that person in that way and help them recover. And then it goes on to say, you must not fail to nurse or give assistance due to dislike or resentment. And that I think is an important point about sickness, about illness. We don't always feel comfortable with it, especially if we cannot help somebody. I mean, when you go to a hospital, you have a friend or somebody you know is in hospital and they might be very ill, they might be not very conscious, they could be very confused, and it might be very uncomfortable. 
And he might not be kind of, he might not feel too good about it. But actually, I think what is important is out of compassion to go, because you will only be slightly uncomfortable for 30 minutes. They are suffering day in, day out. And I think it's very important. I think these Christians are trying to keep short. There is a tendency to be self-centered. Can you try to extend a little further out of compassion, out of realizing, knowing the suffering of others? <coughs> or not care out of resentment. I mean, like possibly if your enemy is ill, you know, bleeding, quite great, you know, that may, may it last very long. That would not be kind of like things for the body said that to do. Then the next one is do not keep implements for killing and have them ready for you. I mean, they have lots of very practical things, you know, that what is not compassionate. And so in a way, you they think do not keep things which can be used for fighting or catching or killing animals, for fighting between human beings and catching or killing animals. And also you should not do this intentionally. Because when I was in, um, in Canada when Stephen was teaching and we're staying with a prosecutor, and it was kind of quite, I mean, a nightmarish experience where we kind of, like we were in the kitchen, and when the kitchen is preparing the meal, and suddenly he grabs a knife, a big knife, he says, Look, this is the arm of choice in these parts. <laughs> lots of stabbing around here. And that's what he had to do lots of case of stabbing. You know, the wife was something in the kitchen, and then bang, you know, then stabbing to her. And I mean, normally this is a knife, I and mean, when we cut the carrot with it, it's fairly, you know, innocuous. But again, I mean, it's interesting sometimes when we hold a knife to see how do we hold it. If we feel a little angry at that moment, it's kind of interesting to look. How do we use objects around us? We could actually be used for hurting someone. But I think in a way for us, what you might look a little more at is how we can use our bodies, possibly as an arm, in a threatening way. Because I think sometimes we do that. We kind of, the way we hold our body, the way we present ourselves to, to people can be actually threatening. And maybe to look at it in those terms. When I was in South Africa, we went to jail. We visited the jail, we did not. We visited the jail to talk to prisoners where the meditation group. And the guy who organized the group was this huge fellow. I mean, I am not very big. He was like nearly twice my size. He was very big. I mean, he was not fat. He was tall. He was very tall and he was very square. I mean, he was, I mean, he was kind of like kind of nearly a giant next to me. And that fellow, because of his physics, I think in a way he, I had the feeling his physicality actually was his arm. And through that, being so big, so tall, then people, in a way, use him and use himself as an arm. And in that way, he killed somebody. And because of that, he was doing 50 years or 20 years in jail. And what was interesting to see was actually in the jail, because the jail is very aggressive, he still had to have that arm, use his body as an arm. Like if people kind of mess up with him, then he would kind of, you know, have to, in a way, kind of pump himself up, so that they would kind of be frightened of him. But actually talking to him, you really had this feeling he did not want to be threatened. He just wanted, in a way, to let his compassion, kind of, you know, care for himself, care for others. And so I think there was this kind of slight difficulty there of having this very 
possibly try a threatening actor kind of physique when actually he's hard, wanting to change, wanting to be different. So in a way, trying to work in the meditation towards a non-threatening attitude. And recently I had actually the opposite of that. Generally, I mean, I am pretty small anyway, so I don't think people are afraid of me. But generally, on top of it, I try to be non-threatening. So really kind of, you know, try to, in my body, speak in mind, to be really non-threatening. And recently this happened in France, that my mother is uh, getting old, and then there is all this guy who passed by and tried to tell various things to the old ladies and take advantage of them. So I'm kind of like a protector of my mother. And so, I mean, and I'm not always there, so often she kind of signs the contract and then things happen. And so I have to deal with the aftermath of the, the guys kind of trying to take advantage. And this time there were these two guys, these two painters, who she'd agreed they would paint the house. But she, <coughs> she wanted a certain color, but they were using another color because that's what they had. And that would be to make it much cheaper than that, of course. So I mean, she tried to tell them not to do that, but forget it. I mean, she's even smaller than me and kind of stopped her, so there's no hope. So she comes to me, do something, and even, I mean, as a physique, but he kind of doesn't have the French good enough to kind of do it. <laughs> <laughs> so then I had to talk to these two guys. And what was funny is that I, I had to pose myself like, kind of, okay, kind of, how can I look threatening? Kind of, so, and really was going against the grain. I mean, I'm not used to it. So I was kind of to do this for about 20 minutes. And, and then I went to see the two guys. And actually, I got them for not my threatening attitude because it did not work whatsoever. <laughs> but actually, creative questioning. That's what got them. So I said, oh, does it mean you can't do this? You don't know how to paint. You don't know how to blend colors. I said, of course we know how to blend colors. I said, yeah, you can do it. I said, sure. That was that. So sometimes I can work also that. <laughs> and then, there is refrain from slandering others. And again, it's interesting here what they said. With an evil intent and baselessly, you should not slander others. I mean, possibly, I think if, if you have good cause, you could slander, but you should not slander if you don't have any cause whatsoever. Possibly not if you have a cause either. You should do it maybe in a more wise attitude. And they say, why should not you slander others? It's because you need to nurture a faithful and compassionate attitude. So again and again, this cultivating a compassionate attitude. Remember, seen as a <coughs> Then you have do not lie destructive fires. I mean, very precise. Don't do it. No, we, I mean, but with an evil intention. This is very important. Evil intention. Because often in the old-fashioned culture, you put fire to the field. But you know, you have, so the way they do it in Korea is that you cannot do it between the four and the nine months because this is when there is lots of insects and animals and then you would kill them if you had fire. So generally, you would make the fire to help the field only in winter. So they say with an evil intention between the fourth to the nine months, you cannot take fire in mountains, plains, meadow, house, cultivated fields, forests, public property. Possibly they did lots of fire in those days, and we don't do so much of it these days. 
So in a way, the thing is, intentionally or deliberately, we do not want to burn any living creature. This is again, in a way, because of the compassion for living creatures. <coughs> then the next one is refrain from doing business with an evil intent. And there, what they mention is to buy and sell citizens, slaves, and animals. I presume you don't go around selling or buying citizens anymore. Mm-hmm. But it's interesting because it points out in terms of business. When we are when we're doing business transactions, when we're buying and selling, can we do it with a compassionate attitude? What would it involve? So you know, we're looking at what is it that we buy, what is it that we sell. Is that causing harm to somebody as we do this transaction? Then there is a this is an interesting one. Do not beg for or try to obtain things by relying upon the authorities. And in this text, this comes again and again. Do not use the authorities to get your own way. Well, I, but in a way, it's looking. Like he said, do not extort money, do not extort gold, do not extort take the gain of others, do not beat others and threaten them with violence. Do not expectively seek such gain. And they say, why? Because when you do that, you discard compassion. But in a way, this is kind of looking at us nowadays, is how do we use, in a way, maybe people in authority or people who have more power, how do we use them for our own sake? And maybe it can be helpful to others. So this is, in a way, I think what they're pointing out. Then there is, save the lives of living creatures and set loose those who are about to be killed. And then we do this because of compassion. And this actually has become uh, a ceremony. In Korea, in China, you have this, again, on special days during the month, you liberate uh, living beings, sentient beings, animals. Generally, animals can go back to the wild. So generally, they go to the market and they buy the fish, they buy birds, they buy kind of wild animals that are being sold alive on the market. And then they will release them. They will kind of again pray for them to uh, raise the mind of awakening and then they will just kind of release them in the water or in the forest or in the sky, whatever. And that really has become kind of like a, a ceremony that they do. I mean, the only problem is that then the guys know when the ceremony is going to be, so they catch the fish. So they them and they catch them again. So it's kind of commerce, I presume. Then you have Refrain, and this is an interesting one to refrain from getting angry, do not strike others, do not take revenge. So in a way, do not repay anger with anger, do not repay blow by blow, and try to avoid committing any misdeeds of body, speech, and mind. And then there is a little in the middle, there is this kind of little thing, do not beat and scold your servant. So do not have too many servants that you have to beat them and scold them. I mean, that nowadays we don't have uh, so much servants. But it's kind of looking, kind of because they say if you do this, you abandon the compassionate mind. And so it's kind of trying to look in our body, speech, and mind. Are we hurtful? Are we kind of, do we prod, do we take revenge, do we... And because this is also hurtful. Not only does it hurt others, it's also hurt ourselves. So it's really abandoning the compassionate mind for ourselves and others. And then the next one is, do not hold 
and her wholesome occupation. So again, out of an evil intention, for the sake of gain, then that's what they sh you should not do. But you might have a, we might need a different one from nowadays, because that's what they had in those days. Selling physical charms of men and women? Don't do this. Selling fortune by looking at the face features? Interpreted dreams. Well, I mean, Jungian sex or therapist would have to But possibly it's kind of, you know, interpreted dreams as in interpreting fortune. Performing tricks to deceive others. Domesticating orcs. And that one, that's my favorite. Concocting poison out of gold, silver, and venom of insects. <laughs> Again, that's what, because they said such occupation would be contrary to a mind of compassion. So again, it's kind of thinking for ourselves nowadays. What would be an unwholesome occupation? What would be an occupation which would be contrary to the mind of compassion? And only three more left. Do you have the patience for it or are you fading? Shall I go on? Okay, yeah. just three, three short ones. <coughs> then the next one is pay ransom and rescue people from their difficulties. And so they say, with a compassionate mind, we should use all our possible skillful means to rescue someone. And that, I think, is important. Skillful means. But in a way, if we see somebody in difficulty, we, 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 we have to try to rescue them. But we need to use skillful means. We need to bring wisdom to it. How can I creatively help that person? How can I rescue them? How can I set them free? In a way, not kind of go blindly and do this, that, or another, but we kind of see what would be the best way, the least helpful way to do that. <coughs> then the next one is do not cause harm to sentient beings. And in that there is do not sell sword, club, bow, bows, and arrows. Use, that's a nice word, use and even balances or inaccurate weight and measures. <laughs> and do not deprive others of their possession. So again, this idea of harmlessness, of trying really not to cause harm. And then the last one, always teach sentient beings. And that's also part of, you know, the compassionate. Produce a compassionate mind and encourage all beings to give rise to the mind of awakening. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.